So I was talking recently with a friend of mine, and he shared with me that his child had recently not been selected for a competitive team that they had really wanted to be a part of. It was hard for the parents, in part because they couldn't understand for themselves, much less couldn't explain to their child why they didn't get chosen. The child still wanted to participate in the activity, and the parents were supportive by signing them up for some other classes, non-competitive ones. What happened next, though, surprised them. Rather than just accepting the disappointment of not making the team, their child went around to all of the coaches that had some influence on the program, and importantly, on the selection of the team. And the child asked them a few questions. What classes could they take to improve? What specifically was lacking and needed work? And would that coach be willing to help them or provide feedback on their progress toward making the team? The parents had no clue that their 11-year-old child had taken the initiative in this way. In fact, until one of the, one of the teachers mentioned it. They were seeking out this goal. They had a goal in mind. They were seeking and they were finding ways to get there on their own. And I love this story for a couple of reasons. But the piece that stands out the most to me is the idea of this child moving past the disappointment and instead trying to find a way to get to their goal, to their desired outcome. And closely related to that is the child's awareness that they needed some help to get there. There was no sense that they were owed a spot on the team or entitled to it. It was all about, for them, this question of how to get there. Our gospel lesson this morning shows something of the opposite self-awareness and initiative. Now, we have to think about where this sits in Mark's gospel. In the past several weeks, we've actually been looking at the, the, the scenes leading up to this. In Mark's gospel, Jesus has, at this point, in the hearing of our story today, at this point, three times, three times told the disciples of his upcoming death. Three times. Each time is a little bit different, but what's clear is that there are difficult times ahead, especially for Jesus, but also for those who follow him. And as we've seen over these texts from Mark the past few weeks, the idea of what it means to follow Jesus is still confusing to the disciples. They have trouble still at this point comprehending what it means to follow Jesus. And so I, I pause for our continued reminder to each of us that if the disciples had this much difficulty understanding who Jesus was when they were with him day in and day out, every day of that ministry, we need to give ourselves room to be confused as well. And we need to give ourselves the grace, the grace when we find it difficult to follow Jesus. So the first two times in Mark's gospel where Jesus tells of his upcoming death, he's met with a little bit of challenge, pushback from the disciples, and, and also that misunderstanding that I mentioned. And they've, they've misunderstood not just what Jesus was saying, but they're also misunderstanding what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah and what it meant for them to be following Jesus. Jesus uses these misunderstandings, though, as a chance to teach about what it means to be a disciple and about who Jesus is. Each time, it's as though he reveals a little bit more of himself to his disciples. As I've been looking at Mark's gospel, especially over the last several months while we've been in this text, 
I've been noticing that there's a journey in Mark's gospel. I think all four of the gospels have a journey of, of showing Jesus, of painting Jesus, but in Mark's gospel especially, it feels as though there's this journey, like a painting, adding layers. Remember Bob Ross adding the happy little trees to the paintings? That's how it feels, like we're, we're un, it's unfolding before us who Jesus is, a journey, a journey that's helping us to understand what the good news might just be. And that's how how Mark opens the gospel. He says, this is about the good news of Jesus Christ. And then he starts going in and painting that picture of who Jesus, the Christ, might just be. And so when we're in the middle of this journey, Mark's challenge is to take us along with the disciples from a state of misunderstanding to a better understanding, a journey of darkness into light. But then comes this third prediction, and this one, interestingly, has three parts within it, three parts within this this third prediction of Jesus' death. And the first takes place immediately prior to the gospel reading that I just shared. And let me start there. So, So we started at verse 35, and that's what's printed in your bulletin. But if we go back to verse 32, we have Jesus taking the disciples aside, and this is what he says is going to happen. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. That's how Jesus puts it in this part of the gospel. This is a very detailed description of what's going to happen. And it mirrors almost exactly when we go several chapters forward to the actual arrest and, uh, and death of Jesus. It, it matches it almost exactly. And this is by far, well, the fact that it matches makes it fit that it's by far the most uh, precise and detailed description of the passion of Jesus. And so it's right after this, like immediately after it, after this detailed telling of the passion of Jesus, that these two disciples, James and John, two brothers, the sons of Zebedee, they step forward and ask this strange question. Actually, it's a a series of strange questions. First, they tell Jesus that they want Jesus to do whatever they ask of him. I think that's a pretty bold demand. It's a pretty bold demand of, of anyone. But it's a bold demand, particularly here, after Jesus has just said what he said. And Jesus responds without making a promise, right? He simply says, so what do you want me to do for you? This is a question we see a lot in Scripture. And we see it several times from Jesus. In fact, we're going to see it again in next week's Scripture text. This question, what do you want? And the two respond with a seemingly bizarre request. They ask Jesus to promise them that they'll be seated at the left and the right of Jesus in glory. It isn't altogether clear what they're asking here. It seems that they're now finally understanding that he's going to die, and they're asking him that once they join Jesus in heaven, they want the good seats. They they want to be on the team, but not only that, they want to be picked first. They want to be captains of the team, right? seated on the left and the right of Jesus. They want the best seats in the house. And why? The subtext here is that they're asking Jesus to choose them as his favorite. But they make no real case for this request. Instead, they just ask for it. 
Jesus, presumably responding to their request, pivots almost immediately to the second part of the prediction of his death. He looks at these two and says, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't get it. You don't understand. Still, you don't understand still what it means to follow me. Following me means drinking the cup that I'll drink. What I've just described to you. It means, it means going where I'm going to go. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus is continuing this explanation because the disciples aren't getting it. But also, also, because the type of following Jesus is describing to them, it's new. It's new to them, and it's new to their cultural understanding of who God is. And this is where Jesus then adds this third element to the retelling of the prediction, the third element to the prediction. The third element is found in the last part of our text this morning where Jesus describes what it means to be a leader. And more importantly, what it means to be what he calls a servant leader, a leader like Jesus, a leader fashioned through, with, and after Jesus such that the leader is both humble and constantly in search of serving others especially those in need. Nothing Jesus says here should be new to the disciples. None of it. He's repeated this more than a couple of times, and so many of his teachings, right? The parables and the other teachings have been about loving people and serving people. And yet, even then, these two disciples don't seem to understand what's going on when they make this request to Jesus. Let us sit at your left and your right. And I don't think the disciples are alone. But unlike my friend's child, the one who went to the coaches and asked the hard questions, how do I get on the team? What do I need to do? Will you help me? They simply go to Jesus and ask for the end goal. They ask for that prize. And in part, this might be because everything around them, they're seeing everything around them crumble away. They're seeing this life they've been living fall away from them as Jesus repeatedly tells them of his upcoming death. And perhaps it seems that they're ignoring the promise of the resurrection because that was there at the end of the prediction. I wonder if you heard it where Jesus says, I'm going to die and on the third day I'm going to rise again. And so maybe, they, maybe they're ignoring it, that promise, that hope of the resurrection. But friends, isn't it, isn't it true that promises and hope are harder for us to comprehend when fear and anxiety overwhelm us? And fear had to be a factor here for these disciples. Fear not just about losing Jesus, but fear at the prospect of what would come for them as well. And in the midst of their fear, they exhibit a reaction, a reaction that we, we know sometimes being referred to as fight or flight, right? Fight or flight. Fight-or-flight reactions happen throughout the Passion narrative. When Peter tries to stop the soldier from arresting Jesus, and he cuts off his ear. When Judas lashes out at Jesus for accusing him of betrayal, betrayal which Judas has already set in motion. When Peter denies knowing Jesus three times, these are all examples of fear or shame influencing one's actions. Fight or flight, I I did a little research on it because I was curious about where that that concept came from. It was first described by American physiologist Walter Bradford Cannon in a book called 
bodily changes in pain, hunger, fear, and rage. Bodily changes in, in pain, hunger, fear, and rage. It was written in 1915. And what he noted is that when animals were threatened by exposure to a predator, for example, their bodies released epinephrine. We know it as adrenaline which would lead to a series of bodily changes, including increased heart rate and respiration. The consequences of these changes are increases in the flow of oxygen and energy to the muscles. Cannon's interpretation of this data was that there were these emergency functions, that, the, that these were emergency functions of, this, of the changes. He noted that they happened automatically and they served the function of helping the animal to survive threatening situations by readying the body for fighting or running. More recently, there's been even more research into this and a model of, of physiological, psychological, and behavioral responses to threats that is termed the defense cascade. Experts describe a series of stages which individuals exposed to threat or trauma may go through, including freeze, flight, fight, fright, flag, and faint. I'm not going to go into all of these, but most of them you can, you can kind of draw from the, the name, right? Freeze, flight, fight, fright. Through, uh, through all of this, through all of this exposure to trauma, the body in the midst of fear responds both, both physically and in how we then respond and interact with others. Fear influences our hearing, our seeing, our understanding, and it also affects our actions. And this is part of what Jesus knows the disciples will experience. He knows they're going to experience this at his arrest, at his trial, at his death, and even in the confusion of his resurrection. And so he's trying repeatedly to help them through their trauma, their coming trauma, to help them through their fear that they're experiencing in that moment. And sometimes I think we're all like these sons of Zebedee, these two brothers who react to Jesus without understanding that they sound both greedy and foolish. Sometimes we're greedy and sometimes we fail to grasp what Jesus is acting of us, asking of us. Professor Janet Childers says that we all have Zebedee DNA in our genes. I love that. We all have Zebedee DNA in our genes. As followers of Jesus and as one seeking to understand how to live in this world, how, how to live within a world that seems to cause that physiological, that psychological, and that behavioral distress that triggers fight or flight, how to live that way while also living as Christ's disciples, as ones who follow Jesus, we have to face the things in our lives that cause us to react with Zebedee DNA. We have to face our humanity, our brokenness, our fears, the issues and the baggage we carry, and we then can live in a way that seeks to replace our, broken, our brokenness with wholeness that we find in Christ. Theologian Henry Nouwen writes that only those who face their wounded condition can be available for healing and so enter a new way of living. Only those who face their wounded condition can be available for healing and so enter a new way of living. Ignoring our brokenness brings us no closer to wholeness. And the invitation to Christ, the invitation to Christ is an invitation to wholeness. 
Jesus is the very model of wholeness. He, he says, I came not to be served, but to serve. And through working through our baggage, our brokenness, our grief, our loss, our pain, our struggles, through seeking to overcome these things that lead us to act like those sons of Zebedee, driven by fear and anxiety, driven by hurt, we can be freed more and more toward becoming like Christ. And we become like Christ when we follow Christ, when we follow Christ's actions, when we study the word to seek to understand how we can be more like Christ, when we walk with one another through the challenges of life and prayerfully seek Christ in the midst of all that we endure. Following Jesus brings us to wholeness. The hard part here is that we know this, and we talked about it a couple weeks ago. The hard part is that Jesus, again, isn't telling James and John that life is going to be easy at every turn. In fact, it's actually the opposite. They're the ones asking for the easy path, right? Let us sit at your left hand and your right hand. Jesus promises, though, in response, he promises that they'll drink the cup that he drinks and that they'll suffer and die like he dies. But I wonder if there's another way to look at it, another way to look at Jesus' response. Could Jesus actually be saying, I know what you want, and actually, you're going to get it, but the path to getting there is a little different from what you think. But first, this isn't always going to be your story. You're not always going to be guided by fear or by your need for security. This won't always be the way you define yourself, and more importantly, this isn't how I see you. I know you in the midst of your pain. I know you in the midst of your fear and your suffering, but this isn't how I see you. I see beyond your fumbling. I see beyond your struggles. I see beyond all of the broken, brokenness. And maybe God looks at those disciples God looks at us and uses words like the words in Psalm 91 that Mindy read for us earlier. God looks at you and says, I will deliver you. I will protect you. When you call, I will answer. I will be with you in trouble. I will rescue you. I will honor you. I will show you my salvation. And so, friends, we seek this God. The God who knows and understands our struggles. The God who promises to be with us in and through our struggles. The God who experiences the pain we experience And we seek this God together, stumbling, bumbling along, but with others at our side, praying for us when we don't have the words to pray, crying with us when our tears run dry, seeing us when we feel unseen. And friends, sometimes we're the ones praying and crying and seeing for others, and walking and talking and journeying with others, all together, reminding us, one another, that we follow a God who delivers and protects, 
who answers and rescues, who honors us, and who is with us always in life and in death. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.